Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today we are joined by Marco Algorta, the Public Affairs and Business Development Director for Chiron. He is the first president of the Chamber of Medicinal Cannabis Companies in Uruguay. Marco, welcome to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very pleased and honored to be here. Marco, you have a very interesting background and we love to hear uh, from you personally what you've been up to. How did you get to this point? Um, what did you do before you were involved in, in the cannabis world? And um, anything else you'd like to share with us about, about your personal life? I know we were talking earlier that we both have five children. So between the two of us, we have 10, which means that, that both of us probably didn't get a lot of sleep last night. So please fill us in a little bit more on, on, on who you are and how you got here to this point. I am Marco. I'm, I'm, stud, I'm studying always uh, literature, uh, books and all that. I was studying in Spain and, and uh, in this moment I, I didn't have any kids. But when I started there in, in Madrid in Spain studying, uh, my, first, uh, my first child was born. So I, I need to start to really work <laughs> and, and win some money. So I, I start to work in the cannabis uh, business. So that's why I started, I started to work in the cannabis business. And after that, I, I really start to understand all the movements uh, that was 10 years ago. Uh, and really, I was, it was very fast. No? Everything is very fast in the cannabis. So I start to start to uh, learn how to grow. After that, I was making a club in Spain. After that, I was in Uruguay making a, a grow shop. After that, in two years after that, I was in a cannabis program, medical program, uh, working on. I have built my own company. I have sold my own company. I have made the first chamber of cannabis company in Uruguay. That all happened in ten years, in the same time that my my kids. Had born, so it was everything in the same time, and we know it's sleeping. <laughs> That's true. Marco, you said in a in an interview with the Chicago Tribune that Uruguay has the opportunity to become to cannabis what Switzerland is for chocolate, or what France is to to wines. Why is this? I say that in July 2017, but things evolve over time. No, I would wait ahead more than four years ago, a very good chance of becoming an important player in the cannabis industry had it focused on rapidly rendering its internal market more flexible and investing in R&D. But unfortunately, 
none of that really happened. Uh, if I had been interviewed again in September 2021, I think that I would say uh, Uruguay still has opportunity to include in its production matrix some cannabis-related products, but this will only happen if Uruguayan authorities get to know this industry, generate an internal market, or more pragmatic as far as decision-making, and do not rely on the dogmatic views of many of its health authorities. We need much more than good intentions in Uruguay, and, and we're still waiting that. Marco, following up on, on that answer, obviously, from, from what you're describing, there, there is a need for, for positive government action in this regard. But looking at the fundamentals, looking at Uruguay's experience with, with agriculture, looking perhaps at some of the climate and other factors that, uh, that Uruguay has, might there be some benefits that the, that the country has or some advantages that it has over other countries that would really justify that uh, effort to, to develop the cannabis industry there? Yes, that's true. Uruguay uh, strains have a lot of strains compared to other countries in the region. Now, like you were saying, the, his culture of being an agriculture producer, a long time agriculture producer. We have um, a political stability and, and legal certainty. Uh, in the cannabis industry, you have a skilled human talent with real experience. You know, that's important. And I think that, that Uruguay is still the country that offers more guarantees to investors than any others in the Latin American continent. So I think that we have a lot of good skills, but um, our weakness, that's, that's our, our biggest problem. Our weakness are the high cost. Uruguay is an expensive country, I, I, much more if you compare with the rest of the, the Latin American countries. Um, and up to this day, we still have a bureaucratic state that takes too long to make decisions. No, in a so dynamic industry like it's cannabis, that is really a problem. Uh, takes so much time to make the decisions or new regulations. If it really speeds the required, required regulatory change up, it may become an innovation hub for the region, provided, however, it does not pull all its cards on the commodity, but on the added value and R&D instead. No? It has... Everything that it needs to become the, the, I don't know, the Silicon Valley, maybe it's too much, but the Silicon Valley of the South America. But even including in the terms of cannabis, but we really need to push up and accelerate this process. So, Marco, let's talk for a minute about the rest of Latin America, including Uruguay. Uh, it looks like the cannabis market is expected to reach 300 million U.S. dollars by 2024. Where do you see Uruguay in this based on its current trajectory? And what are some of the other uh, countries in the region that are making good inroads? And, and how is Uruguay going to be able to compete with them? The, the Uruguay will compete if, with R&D and being like the, 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 the most, the most uh, guaranteed, the most sure country in the region. No? Uh, that's, I think that's, the, 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 like I was saying, the, the, the last question, the strains. But really, we have another country that are really moving far. So uh, in this $300 million that you are saying, I think that Uruguay can have a good part of it. I don't want to talk about numbers, 
the release, the, the, the picture right now is that Uruguay is the biggest uh, producer and exporter of cannabis in Latin America. Now this number of 300 million that you are saying, now we have 15 million. About these 15 million that Latin America has exported to the world about cannabis, 10 came from Uruguay. So we still be the most important part of the cannabis industry, uh, Latin American cannabis industry in the world. But I, I saw other countries moving very fast uh, with much more um, uh, political movement uh, around them. So I'm, I'm, I'm really concerned about Uruguay right now because if, if you don't change some political view here, you can lose this good position that we have right now to be the, 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 the most, the biggest exporter of cannabis in, the, in Latin America. And we did see uh, quite a bit of movement last year, news coming out of Mexico with their countrywide legalization. Um, but our colleague in Mexico and, and other people who we've talked to about it have said that Mexico is doing what Mexico does best, which is start something and, and not be able to complete it, right? You have <laughs> big plans, but not be able to follow through. So what are your thoughts on, on Mexico? Is Mexico the most prominent in Latin America as far as the development goes? Or are there other countries um, outside of Mexico and Uruguay that are, that are making good inroads and that maybe will actually be able to move forward on those plans? I would say that the, the, the country that really must keep an eye in the region is Colombia. You know, Colombia, uh, after many years of uncertainty, uh, I think that the local industry is now explicitly supported by the president. You know, uh, when one month ago, the president of Colombia had talked about the, the, the cannabis industry. He speaks explicitly. It was very interesting, his, his interview. Um, he really he understood what cannabis is and its potential. Uh, the internal market in Colombia is growing. And the country is offering good conditions to those who want to export. So I think that Colombia really is the 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 the, the winner right now. Um, uh, there is no doubt that you, you need to uh, pay attention to other players. Uh, Brazil, I think, that's a very interesting player. Mexico too, as you say, and Argentina. I think that in this order, no, the, these markets are gradually opening and major and major change shall take place in the next couple of years. So, but that's true that Brazil and Mexico, they are like, they are always, pro, um, pro, they are saying that they will, they will open and they not really open. But if you think in the uh, Latin American market of cannabis, not producer, but market, Brazil is the biggest. It's the biggest market in, in Latin America right now. And, and Argentina is promising to move, to move very fast. After that, other players that, such as Peru, Ecuador, Paraguay, and Panama are also developing all those. There are still many doubts about them. Um, anyways, I, I think that we need to be prepared because uh, really, uh, things are really changing real, uh, here in Latin America. Marco, you, you point to some of the failings, uh, if, if I may, on the part of the government in Uruguay in terms of assisting its, its cannabis industry. And it strikes me that those um, concerns are, are present in many of the jurisdictions that, that we look at 
including many of the states here in the U.S. As a matter of fact, I think I think it, it's rare to find practitioners and members of the industry anywhere that would say, yeah, our government, our government is is really getting everything right. You know, of course, there, there are exceptions and there might be differences in terms of the criticism, but it does seem to be a widespread issue, almost to the point where one cannot help but think that, well, maybe that's just the more common situation, right? A situation where government will well, more often than not, get in, get in the way of, of the development of the of the industry. But perhaps we can talk about some of the specific things that governments can do to help. And 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 of course, uh, our focus today is on Uruguay. But I'm sure that there are some commonalities with, uh, especially some of the the other jurisdictions that have uh, advanced far along the, the road of, of legalization. So we never know, right? There might be someone in our audience that, that is in, in, in a position to, to influence policymaking in, in their particular country, in their particular state, and might benefit from this. So looking at it from, from your perspective as, a, as an industry insider, what are, what are some of the things uh, that governments could do that would really, really help the industry grow and develop? The first of it is really uh, open the, the CBD market or the hemp market. Uh, here in Uruguay, you have a lot of tones of, of CBD, of flowers of CBD that cannot be sell because you, you don't have the, the, the mechanism to sell, the, the, the way to sell. So really understand that we can make, I don't know, um, waters, beers, uh, supplement, nutritional supplements of CBD and, and allow the producer to register all these products. That's something that really must happen in Uruguay very fast because we have a big problem that a lot of people start to grow, to grow hemp. We have a lot of flowers, stones of flowers here in Uruguay, but none, none, none can sell. We cannot sell them. So that's the first one, the, the CBD market, the hemp market. After that, uh, really understand what is medical cannabis. What, what are you talking when you talk about medical cannabis? No, um, uh, because uh, sometimes when 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 some doctors uh, talk about cannabis, they are talking always about pharmaceutical products. But if you see the, the pragmatic uh, view of the, the the market of cannabis, is not pharmaceutical products. You have People who take flowers, with vaporizing flowers to, to, to their, their treatment. People who take products that they are not pharmaceutical, they are like uh, extracts, uh, but not with pharmaceutical qualities. Um, they, they don't allow here in Uruguay to use THC like a medicinal product. Okay, The only product, medicinal product you can register if just with CBD and less than 1% of THC. So all these things, market CBD, flexible, medicinal THC, the use of flowers to medical treatments, and really understand all these, these different ways to treat patients with cannabis, uh, that's very important because they, they always see cannabis like a, a new pharmaceutical product, but I think it's much more than that. And, and that's always the problem. 
where I put cannabis. I put like a pharmaceutical uh, drug because it, by the, the, the OMS or the, the health organization of the world, they, they, they say that uh, it's a narcotic. So you, we need to treat like a, 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 a pharmaceutical product. Okay, but it's not, it's not to treat like that. You know? We really understand um, other different ways like, like Germany is doing. Okay, like Israel is doing. I think that that's the problem. They have a much open market, flexible, really to treat patients and to give answers to those patients. Because right now, what you have, you have producers that are producing and patients that are not receiving treatment. And in the middle, you have a, a very obstacle, an enormous obstacle, regulatory obstacle that don't allow uh, producers uh, reach uh, patients. And that cannot happen. Marco, I think it'd be very helpful to understand a little more about Uruguay's political environment. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, kind of the th things going on generally, how, how the economy is doing, and what the greater discussion is surrounding cannabis as, as a part of the economy? But I'm really curious about, about the political dynamics right now in, in Uruguay. I think most of us are not familiar with what's going on. It'd be great to have your insights. Uruguay is a very democratic country. It's the, the, the most democratic country in all Latin America. In all the rankings, they are always the first one. Okay? It's a very free country uh, with press, very free press. Count, uh, press. Uh, really, you have all the... You um, are like a, a European democracy more than a Latin American democracy in our index. Uh, we have been for 15 years of um, a very, um, let's say, a very progress progressist uh, gov government. Uh, but two years ago have changed to more a, a liberal conservative uh, government right now. Okay. But instead, other people think that the, 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 the conservatives, liberal government will change things in cannabis. Not that happened. Uh, they really, they really uh, try to accelerate this process about cannabis, uh, the liberal one, because they see a, a, a big potential, economic potential in Uruguay with cannabis. Uh, but they don't, they don't, they, they, they cannot yet um, negotiate in the, in the, with the, the, the authority, the regulatory authorities of health, how to move this cannabis and how to export this cannabis. Uruguay have a very um, solid economy based on agricultural products. Okay, um, more than seventy percent of our ex exportations are are commodities. Uh, you 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 are the number one to sell meats, uh, cow meats. Uh, after that, all the um, cellulose uh, industry. That's the other big industry. Uh, soy, soy too. We are selling a lot. Tourism. And after that, you have technology and, and software and, and, and all the things. So Uruguay have a, a very big potential and know-how in the agriculture sector. But we did not transform this knowledge to support the cannabis industry. That's what we really must do. All this knowledge that you have to know how to work the, the land, how to, to grow plants, you must really put in the service of the cannabis industry, but still have some problems with that. Uh, uh, the, the old farmers 
it's still not like too much the, the this this kind of of product this kind of of, of cultivation so um what really need Uruguay is to embrace this opportunity really understand cannabis and with all this potential with all this stability demo, democracy stability political stability uh, all this agricultural potential push and support the cannabis industry forward so let's talk more about your experience with um, Canapure, which you sold to Chiron Life Sciences, where you're now the global public relations manager. I'd love to hear, I, I do a lot of international transactions, a lot of cannabis transactions as well. I'd love to hear about your process for uh, your work at Canapure, how that changed uh, when you decided to sell the company and what that experience was like, and, and ultimately why you did it. You know, what did, what did you hope to gain um, it's, you're certainly still involved uh, post-sale, which a lot, a lot of sellers are not always involved in that way. But um, in the startup space, when you get acquired, often your acquirer wants you to stick around for a while to keep continuity with your customers, with your products. Um, and so certainly would love to hear more about your experience there. A sell the company, you know, it's like the first time you watch your child crossing the street alone. <laughs> it's not easy to emotionally detach from one's brand, from one's way of doing things, of, of, of my own managing. It's not easy. <laughs> I know you have an emotional tension in this moment. However, uh, be part of something bigger. Uh, it allows you to, to see, to know uh, what other things, learn and nurture new views, I don't know, uh, uh, be bigger, you know. Uh, if if I really were to go back in time, I think they will, will do exactly the same uh, step. You know, it, it was a very like a, a traumatic experience, but now uh, two years ago, uh, I'm very happy with the decision that I made. And and why I sold my company? That's a good question. Uh, I sold my company because one moment I realized that that. To develop an idea in this industry, you need a huge financial backing. You know? uh, it's very difficult to do that with not a lot of money and a lot of support, financial support. And also, I really was lucky on that. I was lucky to find a company with my same view. Because uh, everybody see Latin America like an opportunity as a producer. But I always see Latin America and above all, as a market. And really, Chiron have the, the same view that I have. Uh, and I think that I just found the, I don't know, the ideal partner, which allowed me to, to take a bigger step. So I really, I, I'm, I'm very happy. I, that's true that some persons uh, post-sell, they don't still work on the company. But I, I, I really ask it to still work in the company because I, I, of course, everybody wants to make money. That's true. But if you have five kids, that's, uh, that's always a problem. But I really want to make things happen. And Chiron have supported me on this view. It was a, a very difficult, but a, a very good process, sell my company to Chiron. So tell us what you're doing now as the public relations manager. I, I kind of have an idea. I've never worked in public relations, and certainly you have a global scope to the business. So I'd love to hear what you're doing uh, you know, in Uruguay, in Latin America more generally, and, uh, and globally. What, what do you do on, on a day-to-day -day basis? My work is 
is to see the opportunities that Chiron have in in two countries, three countries, Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina. Uh, most focus on Brazil because I live in Uruguay, but I'm Brazilian. I have born in Brazil. So I know very well all the Brazilian market and all the Brazilian players. So I, I always talking with another players in Brazil, uh, seeing opportunities in the market, talking with authorities, politicians, um, seeing opportunities in Uruguay too. Uh, that's my work. My work is is in finding the way that because it's very difficult to sell cannabis. Everybody that is in this market know that it's very easy, not easy, but it's much more easy to produce than to sell cannabis. So I'm always looking the way, finding the way to sell cannabis in, in, in Brazil, in Uruguay, in Argentina, uh, finding logistic ways. Uh, we have made a logistic process even, uh, find a way to, to, to sell more cheaper, to have uh, less cost. Uh, well, what are the doctors that are really prescribing? What they are prescribing? Um, which region in each country? Because uh, Uruguay is very like homogeneous. But if you see Brazil, Brazil is like a, a, a continent. You know, we have a lot of countries inside Brazil. So we have uh, states like São Paulo, Rio de Janeiro. They have one kind of persons, one kind of doctors. After that, you have in the south. Uh, another kind of of persons, another kind kind of immigrations that have, came to this part of Brazil. Uh, after that, if you go to the north, it's something totally different. Uh, doctors have some uh, very different views about cannabis. So understand all this this difference. Understand all this complex world that's in Brazil, uh, in Argentina the same. It's is my my work. To see how how get uh, that how patients Brazilian patients can reach uh, Chiron products in the best way. Marcos, since you brought it up, and by the way, I didn't I didn't know you you were from from Brazil. That's uh, interesting. I, I did not have an idea that that was that, that was coming. So so that's great that that opens up new topics to to discuss. Although of course there's there's plenty to to talk about in in Uruguay itself. But this is sort of going away from our main topic a bit, but I found what you just said about the different approaches in different parts of, of Brazil and, and how, how that reflects the country's diversity to, to be very interesting. And, and I'd like to take the opportunity to, to explore that a, a little bit, just to, to lead us into this topic. Um, I've, I've been lucky enough to, to visit Brazil twice for work. Both of my, my trips took me First, to to the very south of Brazil, you know the the, the state that is uh, adjacent to to Uruguay, and then from there, after a couple of days on both occasions, we we flew to the northeast, sort of jumping over everything in the, in the middle. And of course, I mean this is going to sound uh, like a cliche, right? But it, it it really was like going to a different country. At one level, anyone who looks at the map can can understand that. A country that is as big as Brazil will, will have these these regional differences, but uh, I'd like to, to to go a little bit deeper into that and and maybe looking at it perhaps from a from a business perspective, right? Which is something with which you you have experience. Uh, what can people going into into Brazil expect in terms of of the differences as they do business? around the country. And you, you bring up another interesting point, which is that 
when you're doing business in a place like Uruguay, right, because of the size, you can more or less treat it as, as a market. But when you're looking at a place like Brazil, you're really talking about, about many different markets. Could you share some thoughts with us about this? Yes, of course. Um, I, would, I would give an example. The, the, the biggest fast food um, restaurant in Sao Paulo is McDonald's. And five, five, 400 kilometers in Rio de Janeiro is a, a brand that called Bob's. <laughs> and nobody knows them, but they are the biggest one in Rio. Uh, you have just 400 kilometers of distance between one or two. You have always in, you know, in markets in Brazil, always you have products that are the leader in, in one state and they didn't appear in the top 10 in other states. So appear in the top 10 in other states. So uh, really you need to understand each state. And more than that, you need to understand cities. Because I will go an example in Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo, the state of Sao Paulo have 44 million persons. Okay? And the city of Sao Paulo have 17 million persons. But the rest have 28 million persons. The rest of Sao Paulo, the state of Sao Paulo. And the economy of the rest of the state is comparable with a, a European country like Spain. You have a very high quality of life. And nobody knows that. Nobody knows that you have cities like, I will say a name, maybe nobody know, Campinas. They have four, three million and 800 persons, okay? With a quality of life like, I know, uh, Italy. You have another cities like Junjai. I'm talking Junjai, but you're talking about more than two million persons. São Bernardo, São Caetano. So you have like is a is an ocean of opportunities. But it's very important if you want to get in Brazil to understand that you you cannot get Brazil as one. You really must focus, make make focus. You know, focus. Okay, I will work in. Uh, the region north of the state of Rio de Janeiro because I have uh, the right players and I will get that. After that, I need a new strategy if I want to go to the south of the state of Rio de Janeiro because there are different persons and I need different players to get in. So really understand all this diversity is the only way to get in Brazil because what, what I haven't seen and the cannabis industry happens too, that they have one strategy to Brazil and they fail, of course, they fail. So if you, if you really understand, like you say, you know, it was in, in the frontier of Uruguay, Rio do Sul, it was a state, and you go to the Norwich, you go to Bahia. It's, it's a different country, but totally, they, they just speak the same language and use the same money, but the rest is totally different. The, the, the aspect of the persons, how they, they work, how much hours they work, what kind of problems, health problems they have, what their relation with cannabis, what the education that doctors have received to prescribe cannabis are totally different. So um, if you don't understand the diversity, you'll be lost in Brazil. That's true. So uh, um, you have a, always Brazilians say something that I think is interesting. Say, uh, Brazil is not for amateurs. No? Uh, and I I'm, I'm totally agree. Uh, Brazil is very difficult. It's, it's a huge opportunity, but it's very difficult. So you need to be very professional. You understand all the details of this country and cities to really have a, um, a successful um, strategy to, to get in this market. So let's move to a uh, topic of health. 
certainly cannabis is in the conversation. You've mentioned uh, your involvement. Uh, we understand that you've been involved in, in promoting investigations about how cannabis is potentially useful in autism diseases. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the investigations? Uh, who put them on? What were some of the results that, uh, that are coming up in those studies? Yes, yes. Well, it's preclinical research that has been going for two years now. Uh, the first thing you have found is that, and again, we are talking about preclinical investigations, uh, autistic patients uh, who make controlled use of cannabinoids and who are closely monitored by doctors have experienced a significant improvement of their quality of life. Really, uh, cannabinoids are really beneficial for people who suffer from autistic disorders. This is a fact. That's, that's, that was very uh, good uh, comprobation, uh, a good result from the, 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 the investigation. And the second, the second thing that we have saw in this, um, this uh, research, it was that not all extract works the same way. You know? and not cannabis, not, no cannabis oil is the same. Uh, that's uh, very important to understand that. These are universal possibilities to explore. We must associate certain treatments to specify genetics go under certain range, and above all, using particular extraction process to get the best of those extracts in medical terms. No, it's like a equation, genetics plus cultivation methods plus extraction methods uh, equal uh, one precise reserve result in terms of health. Uh, that's, we were really impressed about that in, in this, this preclinical trial because uh, it was like, they are very similar uh, cannabinoid rates, about THC and CBD, two genetics, very similar uh, cannabinoid rates, but with totally different results about all the, the, the terpene, flavonoids, compounds. So we uh, really, really need to understand all this, all this complex world because really you have re there a uh, um, uh, universe of possibilities to explore. And the third thing that I think the most important conclusion of the research is that there's, there are no shortcuts, no green rush that it worth it if you don't focus on knowledge and research. Everything is dead. No? Companies may have strong trademarks and price of their shares may be high for a certain time, but for companies to continue to do business, especially for those who want to lead the final cannabis boom then it's, that it's coming in the next years. Uh, this company, they need to deeply invest in research to come up with as many accurate data as possible. No? These will certainly be the winners of this career, of this rush of cannabis. So uh, no shortcuts. That's a very, it was like a very good result. You know? Only with knowledge, we're going to have strong companies that will survive all the waves of cannabis boom. So I think as a good follow-on to that, let's talk about startup companies in general. And we can talk about cannabis startups as well. But I find that entrepreneurs who have owned their own startups, have been involved in startups, um, often uh, the lessons are, are very similar, right? In, in what makes a company successful, what makes companies fail. Uh, you mentioned uh, the kind of, we call a myopic viewpoint of, of what the company is focused on, which is, uh, external, uh, at least I've found for uh, a lot of public 
cannabis companies. They're very focused on boosting their share price, uh, getting out good news after good news after good news, and not necessarily uh, disclosing any uh, anything that is uh, negative about the company, right? Trying to limit that as much as possible, which makes sense. But at the same time, um, what are your thoughts on companies, uh, startups especially, as they're in the early stages, they're, they're probably pre-revenue, how do they, uh, what should they be doing? What are some lessons you've learned that you think are, are the best ways for startup entrepreneurs to run their businesses as opposed to some of the things you've seen that, that are not good ideas? Oh, in these years of experience, I have seen a lot of startups, many startups. Um, the majority has a, a huge flaw, flaw. They are in love with their business models, with investments they manage to raise. And if they believe to know about this industry. You know, uh, what makes a startup possible is, first of all, uh, knowing the right timing for your project and the steps of your project. You know, uh, this is an industry of timing. You must find the right time to each step. Um, a business model may be bad today, but excellent in two years, and vice versa, it's very dynamic. Dynamics. And understanding evolution from a historical perspective is key. Uh, for example, to start growing cannabis now, uh, I think it's not a good business. You know? uh, uh, the world, the world right, right now is plenty of flowers of cannabis. But um, but yes, there are many good other good business at this time. Uh, you don't have to fall in love with your plan, but you do have to understand the moment, the timing. That's I think that's the most important part of the uh, of a startup success. And always your team is also key. You know, it needs to have a vision and a mission that, that really seeks more than just profitability or press release, like you're saying, you know, because companies, they're always making new press release and, but they really must uh, make the focus on your vision and your mission. You know? And obviously it must also be able to implement such a plan and make it viable. That's true. But it has to have an horizon that is limited by an, an Excel spreadsheet, you know, and, and, and it's capable to, of reinventing itself every day to uh, resilience. That's another resilience, very important in this, in this industry, and I think is, is the main asset of a good team. So Marco, I, I cannot talk to someone from Uruguay or Brazil for that matter without, uh, without bringing up football or as it's known here in America, soccer. It's a different conversation depending on which country we focus on. But but let me focus on on Uruguay. It's just an amazing trajectory that the that the country has had historically in this sport. It seems that you cannot watch a, a game, a European football game, without at least there being uh, a, one player from Uruguay on the field at any given time, maybe more. And, and making in, in, incredible uh, contributions to, to those teams. So I'm interested in hearing your perspective on this, um, because when these uh, themes come up, you know, how is it that a country is, is doing so well, consistently producing so many top level players? You know, one, one common answer is, well, um, it's a sport that people love and then you've got so many youngsters that, that play it from an early age. But that is probably true of a lot of countries, or, or I know that to be true for, for, for a lot of countries around the world, and the results are not, not the same. So 
I know it's a it's it's probably a something that's difficult to quantify, but to the extent that it's possible, what is it about Uruguay? You know, speaking of exports, right? I mean, we talk about about beef, we talk about now cannabis, but but there's also this again incredible trajectory of consistently producing top level players. If you look at football as a as an industry, and it, and it is, it, it is the equivalent of populating the Apples and Teslas and Microsofts of the world consistently with high-level executives. So we'd love to hear your perspectives on that. Yeah, I, I love soccer, so I can talk about that. Uh, Uruguay is like, I always compare Uruguay like, you know, in philosophy, philosophy Greece, but Uruguay, that means that for the football. All the rules of the football, all the first uh, championships so, have been organized or have been poured in Uruguay. The first World Cup it was in Uruguay. So Uruguay is, is really in the origin of this uh, sport. Uh, it's true that they have been invented by England, England, but when England came to Uruguay to make the trains, they bring the sport. And really who had developed the, the sport, the soccer, it was in Uruguay, Argentina, and in the south of Uruguay. Of South America, so you, you, um, it's, it's like an old, old, old tradition here. Soccer is not just a sport. Uh, all the kids, all all the kids uh, are playing soccer every Monday, every um, Sunday. Every Sunday, you have a, like a, a, a enormous champion, Uruguayan championship of of kids uh, about five years and more. Uh, with four or five years, you start to 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 play every Sunday with your team. There's your team of your neighborhood. You have uh, small um, side fields, uh, fields of soccer in every in every neighbor, every corner. So really, it's like um, it's much more than a tradition, it's like a religion here in Uruguay. Uh, play soccer. It's like you cannot. You cannot not play soccer. It's impossible. It's very difficult to find an Uruguayan that really don't know nothing about football, soccer, or don't know how to play soccer. So, and it's very interesting because if you see demography in Uruguay, you have three million persons in Uruguay with a, a rate of growth of the uh, persons very like an European country. So you, you don't have too much young persons uh, borning every day, every every year in Uruguay. But we export. More players in the world for for uh, for uh, compared with population more than any country in the world. So it really is a, a like a, a exportation product. The soccer players here in Uruguay is is I don't know. It's like a tradition. You know, you cannot separate Uruguay from soccer. You cannot separate Uruguay from soccer. Uh, everybody knows what is going with the national team, who is playing the national team, uh, the, the teams, uh, the two big teams here, Pinheiro and Nacional. Everybody knows what's happening with them. Uh, every news related about soccer is in the first page of the newspaper in the last day. Um, when Uruguay wins a, a, a game, oh, even the economy change. People start to spend more money in the street. So um, it's like an, a national problem, a national issue at the soccer. So it's, 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 it's very difficult to, to explain to a foreign because, of course, you say, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a sport, you're all crazy. But now it's like it's, it's really in the heart of the Uruguayan, even when the, the national team, I know that other countries um, cure the same, but really it's like, it's like part of our life. You, you cannot um, sing a day without thinking 
about soccer or talking about soccer. Uh, well, no, uh, when you go with friends and then take a beer, uh, 25% of your time, 40% of your time, you're going to talk about soccer. Uh, who players came, who make a, a go, who, I don't know, uh, how, how Uruguayan soccer have played in Europe. Uh, everybody knows everything about soccer. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to, to explain, but like is is uh, is in our um is is much more it's like in our dreams we dreams with with soccer so is is uh, our inconscient is soccer so it's, it's very difficult to to really understand it compare but even if compared with brazil and argentina i think that uruguay is a much more soccer country than all those countries because uh, even we don't have another sport, that's another problem. We don't have expressive uh, results in any another sport. So it's, it's the only sport that you can be uh, like, like, okay, let's go for Uruguay. But yes, it's, it's, it's very interesting uh, what's happened with soccer in Uruguay. Yeah, and thank, thank you for, for highlighting something that's critical to this conversation, which is the size of the population, right? Because obviously, yeah, Brazil, obviously, and Argentina, yeah, they also... Uh, again, you, you you will not watch uh, a high level game in Europe without there being players from from both of those of those countries. But their populations, of course, are are much larger than than Uruguay's. That's true. Yes, Argentina have ten four ten no twelve times more persons than Uruguay, and Brazil have 70, 70 times more persons than Uruguay. Brazil have two hundred millions, two hundred ten millions, and Uruguay have three million. So yes, it's a huge difference. Marco, it's been wonderful to have you with us on the podcast today. It's hard to believe we're already at time. We always love to end with recommendations from me, from Fred, from you. Um, is there anything that you've read or watched or or listened to recently that you'd like to recommend for our audience? Yes. Uh, first, I'm going to recommend something that I prepared in Spanish for a, a, a rather Latin American audience, but you can see in YouTube with, with subtitles. Uh, that's a talk that I gave for the platform Campus Party Conosur. Um, it's about the four pillars of a cannabis venture. I watched it again recently, and, and I was really surprised by how update, up to date, and accurate it still is. So I, I, I think that was like a very good um, explanation how to make a startup or how, how to make a project about in cannabis. And and my other recommendation, you'll think them crazy, but uh, I love books. I I love good stories. And I'm going to tell you something. Sigmund Freud, perhaps the the foremost mind of the 20th century, uh, learned Spanish just to be able to read it in the original language and not miss a thing. Trust me, everyone should read Don Quixote de la Mancha, the Cervantes, because uh, it's an amazing book, and everything there is to know is in everything to know is in there. So really, I know it's not cannabis, it's not it's not soccer, but uh, Don Quixote La Mancha is a, like a classic book. Really, take your time to read it because it's is is um, um, that change everything when you start when you finish read. You're gonna see that okay, something really happened to you when you read this book. Those are great recommendations. Thank you. Fred, what do you have for us today? Well, uh, Marco, I, I have to say, you, as I listened to you, I, I felt a, a pang of, of, of guilt, but also urgency. Um, I, I, I grew up in, in Puerto Rico, and Don Quixote was part of the curriculum. Um, but I, 
I think we we read the condensed version, and, and of course, um, being who I was in high school, I didn't really do a, a great job of, of even reading reading that carefully. Not that I'm proud of that, but of course, it, it's such a, a fundamental work, not, not just for Spanish literature, broad, but obviously for for world literature, really. And that's very interesting. The the, the tidbit about about Freud. For my recommendation today, I'm slightly wary of making this recommendation because I've just begun reading this book, but I'm, I've enjoyed um, every line so far. It's really well written, and I, I have a good feeling about where this is going to to go. It's a book that's definitely been in the news, but but, but at least for for people like uh, like me and Jonathan, China followers, um, this is a book that's been commented on quite a bit and it's uh it's called red roulette uh an insider's story of wealth power and corruption by a man called desmond chum it really takes us into into the world of china's i don't want to use the term elite because precisely part of what the book does is highlight the difference between the wealthy in, in the financial sense and the true sources of power in China, which of course is the Communist Party, and the, the tensions that exist. So you have to take that 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 term "elite" with a grain of salt. But um, it's a gripping read, just really well done, really smooth. I haven't finished it simply because I haven't had the time. It's just very interesting, and frankly, I, I'm I'm still in the early stages of the book, reading about the childhood and the adolescence of the author. Right, so I haven't even gone into the really meaty part of, of it. But so far, so good. I'm just going to go ahead and recommend that to, to anyone who has an interest in, in, in China. Red Roulette. Jonathan, what do you have for us? Well, since we're doing true confessions about a high school, Fred, I have to admit that uh, I played soccer in high school and it was in the, in the fall. And I started AP English my senior year. And the first thing the teacher said was, we're going to read two novels in the next week or two at the most, right? Two pretty thick novels. And I looked around and I said, yeah, no, I've got soccer. I've got more important things to do than read a couple of novels in the next two weeks. And so I dropped down to regular English after uh, after being an AP English. So true confessions, I, I was not a, a big fan of, of reading uh, things I didn't want to read in high school. But that brings me to my next recommendation, which is uh, I've recommended this author before. I think I've I've read or listened to with my kids all of the all of the books by Brandon Mull. He's uh, you know, we've we've gone through several series of his. Um, just a, a great storyteller, and so this series I'm recommending his whole this whole series by him called The Five Kingdoms, and there are five books in this series. They're all done, um, and it is. You know, from a, from, I'm not going to call this high literature, right? But if you want a a complicated but believable story, and this is a, these are fantasy based books, so there's a lot of magic involved. But in each of these five kingdoms, the magic works in a different way, and so it's really fun. It's all tied together, very complex, but but believable, understandable, and fun. And his writing is great. So if you're if you like me are a parent looking for something to uh, read or watch with your kids or even without your kids. Um, this is something that I highly recommend. This is my kids who are, uh, you know, uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that age range. They're the ones who really enjoy this. And of course, I'm I'm well above that age range and I still enjoy them quite a bit. So the five kingdoms, 
you call it a, a quintology, a trilogy. I don't know what you call a five, uh, a pentology, right? I don't know what the word is, but five books by Brandon Mull uh, in the Five Kingdoms series. And with that, Marco, we want to thank you for uh, being with us. It's been a lot of fun and hope that we can catch up with you again. Thank you very much. Global Law and Business is a production of Harris Bricken. The team includes Madeline Williams and Michaela Moore. The music is composed by Stephen Schmidt. If you like the show, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a review there. We'd like to hear what you think of the show, and it helps new listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then. Thank you.